Author and comedian Garrison Keillor once remarked uh, that Christmas at the end of the day and all the joy of Christmas that you think you experience is really nothing more than a set of natural chemical fireworks in your brain. He said, and I quote, although you may decide, although you may decide that instead of singing Christmas carols, you're going to hold hands and breathe in unison, Christmas will still live in the deep cockles of your heart, or actually in your neocortex, stored as zillions of neuron impulses. It's your brain that sends tears to your eyes when you smell the saffron cookies that your grandma used to make or when you sing Silent Night. So Christmas is number one, lights, number two, food, number three, song, number four, being with people that you like. You need no more. Now, with all due respect to Garrison Keillor, is that really all that Christmas is? Lights, food, song, being with people that you like and love, and have it all light up your neocortex? You know, or is there more to the story that our kids have told us today? Uh, we've been looking at the New Testament book of Luke for the last couple of weeks, and the early chapters of the Gospel of Luke tell the Christmas story. And if you were here on the first week, you remember that Luke was not one of the original disciples of Jesus or even an eyewitness to Jesus Christ. He says at the beginning of his letter that he had to go back and to interview people, to investigate, and to put together an account of all that had happened just a few years before him. So like us, Luke was not an eyewitness uh, to these events, to Christmas and all that followed. But unlike us, modern people, he did live in the time period where you could still talk to firsthand believers, to those who did see. So Luke serves for us as a really helpful middleman between us and them, between then and now. And Luke seems to come out the other side of his investigation with a sense that the Christmas story is not just lights, food, song, happy neurotransmitters, and brain tickles. It is a story with historical grounding that also addresses the deepest longings of the human heart. Uh, Luke finds that Christmas is a story of both historical substance and personal significance. So, Let's jump back into it. We're gonna, not going to quite make it to the Christmas story proper this week. That'll be next week. Uh, this week is the birth of John the Baptist. Luke chapter 1, as you just heard, verse 57. Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son. And her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. So we met Elizabeth uh, the first week of our series. She's a righteous elderly woman who was also barren. She was unable to have children. But through a miraculous intervention of God, of God she uh, and her husband conceive and they give birth to a son who's predicted to become this great spokesman for God to prepare the way of the Lord, it said he will do. Verse 59, and on the eighth day they came to circumcise the child and they would have called him Zechariah after his father, but his mother answered, no, he shall be called John which was the name given to them by the angelic messenger earlier in the chapter. And they said to her, none of your relatives is called by this name. And they made signs to his father inquiring what he wanted him to be called. So you think your in-laws are meddlesome. They are literally trying to name her kid for her eight days after the fact. And since she doesn't go along with it, they try to pull rank on her, dragging Zechariah into it. 
verse 63. And he, Zechariah, asked for a writing tablet and wrote, John is his name. And they all wondered. And immediately his mouth was opened, his tongue loosed, and he spoke, blessing God. So for nine months now, Zechariah could not speak. If you remember from last time, uh, he was the star of a new first century TV show called Hushed by an Angel. Uh, joke credit, thank you, Joe Kranz, goes to my friend. It was not original with me. Get that out on the table so I don't have to pay him anything later. Um, but John was told by the angel that since he didn't believe his message, he would be silent for nine months until the child was born. But Zechariah comes through now. He's steadfastly resolute in his decision to give the boy the heaven-prescribed name rather than his own name, which I think may have been a hard decision. But the nine months of silent reflection and holy affliction did its work in Zechariah. His doubts had been expunged. J.C. Ryle says, let us take heed that affliction does us good as it did to Zechariah. Sanctified afflictions can be spiritual promotions. The sorrows that humble us and drive us nearer to God are a blessing and a downright gain. For no case is more hopeless than that of a person who in a time of affliction turns his back upon God. Verse 65, and fear came upon all their neighbors. And all these things were talked about through all the hill country of Judea. And all who heard them laid them up in their hearts, saying, What then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. So the whole town hears about what happened, and they do what small towns do. They talk about it. They're a little freaked out by it. And so they muse on this, wondering, what is this kid going to be when he grows up? We'll find out later in the story. But now in the second part of this passage, we get to see Zechariah's prophetic spoken word or poem, it's almost like a song, when his mouth is opened and he can speak again. Now it says here he's filled with the Holy Spirit when he speaks, which means that God is inspiring him and moving him to say these words. And it's significant that it says this, it's significant that he prophesied because there had been no prophecy, no spokesman for the Lord in Israel since 400 years prior to this. So in some ways, it's more than just nine months of silence that's being broken with Zechariah's prophecy. It's more like 5,000 months in terms of any word from God. So he says, verse 67, and his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied saying, blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited or he's come for and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham, to grant us that we, being delivered from the hands of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all of our days. Now there's two, there's two primary poetic images in this prophecy, the first of which is about strength. This is what Zechariah means by God is raising up a horn of salvation. 
He's not talking about the brass instrument kind of horn. He's talking about the horns of an animal, like an ox. And this imagery is common in the Old Testament uh, for for a picture of strength in places like Deuteronomy 33 and 2 Samuel 22 and Psalm 18. And it may not resonate with you and I the same way that it would uh, for the people who grew up in farming communities or who, if you've ever helped raise livestock. Now, if you grew up around livestock, you have much more respect for the horns of a bull than most people. You know, if you've ever tried to rope a cow or had to lead a steer around, you find out very quickly you better do it the right way because these animals are so much stronger than you and they will drag you around the barnyard. But even today, you know, we still use uh, bullhorns sometimes as a kind of a machismo uh, symbol of strength that you put on the front of your big truck or the front of your muscle car. Or it's even kind of the symbol for a, a strong and growing economy on Wall Street, the bull. So Zechariah is saying in this imagery, that God is going to raise up someone strong to fight for his people, to deliver them from their enemies. It'll be someone from the house of David, which for an Israelite, I try to think, I don't, I'm not sure that we really have the, the same type of cultural connection to this that they would, but it almost would be like saying a descendant of King Arthur is gonna come back and sit on the throne of England. David had that kind of legendary, though historical status, uh, in Israel. And this strong salvation horn will be the fulfillment of the promises, old promises made to their forefather Abraham. And it's critical to understand the implications of Zechariah's prophecy here, where he points out, why does he, why does he go to great lengths to point out these connections to David and Abraham? He's saying that what God's about to do through Jesus is not a brand new, out of nowhere, religious novelty. It's instead a continuation and a culmination of a millennia-long process that God has been working out in the world for thousands and thousands of years. In other words, the Bible is not a set of odd, uh, disjointed stories simply for our moral instruction. The Bible is a unified story of God's loyal love and his brilliant plan to intervene in the world and to save us from enemies who are too strong for us to defeat on our own. But deliver us from what enemies and how, in what way? Uh, keep reading, verse 76. Zechariah says, if his son John and you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. Because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. So the second key image in this poem, prophecy, is light. It's about the sunrise breaking in on us, giving light to those who sit in darkness, knowledge of salvation and the forgiveness of sin. Now, kind of like with the, the bullhorns, I'm not sure we have the same appreciation for light as those who live in a society without electricity. But if the storms cut off your electricity today, you will remember how important light is. Or if you've ever gone camping, you find out really quickly, you better bring a light. 
Or if, I don't know, just in the morning when you get up out of bed and you go into your closet to pick, up your, pick out your clothes or you go get a shower, the first thing you do is you turn on the light. Why? Well, light means you can see the truth about a given situation. You can see things for how they really are. So you can find your way around. So what does this mean that Jesus will be to us a breaking sunrise? Well, on the one hand, God coming into the world with strength, the horns of salvation, and light, the breaking sunrise. This all sounds pretty awesome to me. And to totally nerd out on you, uh, this passage reminds me of the scene in The Lord of the Rings, the Two Towers movie, where Gandalf and all the Rohirrim come riding in at the last possible minute to rescue the all but defeated forces of Rohan at Helm's Deep. And you see the sunrise break over the mountains, uh, and Gandalf and his allies ride down the steep cliffside with the sunbeams behind them just slaying all the enemy orcs that are in their path. That's the kind of image this passage evokes to me. But if that, there's also a flip side to saying that. If you say that Jesus is the strong horn of salvation, that he's the breaking sunrise to give us light, then that means that we were too weak to save ourselves that we were too lost in the dark and too blind to find our way to Him. You see, the Christmas story implies something less than flattering about you and me and the human condition generally. Uh, Larry shared a quote from Tim Keller last week in his sermon that I thought was very good, and I'll quote it to you again in just a second. But leading up to the quote, uh, Dr. Keller asked in his book, he said, imagine that Christmas morning arrives and you're at a Christmas party and comes time to open your gifts. So you're excited, you open the very first gift, and it's a book on dieting. Okay, so you put it aside, you pull the paper off the next gift from another friend, and yet it's another self-help book entitled Overcoming Selfishness. Now by accepting these gifts, you are saying something. <laughs> uh, Keller says, you're saying thank you, for indeed I am fat and obnoxious. So he says, there has never been a gift offered that makes you swallow your pride to the depths that the gift of Jesus Christ requires us to do so. Christmas means we are so lost, so unable to save ourselves, that nothing less than the death of the Son of God himself could save us. In other words, we all have demons that are too strong for us. We all have sins that are too great for us to atone for. We're all blinded, bound, with neither the grit nor the wit to see our way through it and to figure it out for ourselves or to put ourselves back together. So we can't just hold hands and sing, welcome Christmas, Dahu Dores. Watch the Grinch this weekend, yes I did. Um, we can't just sit around and wish for peace on earth and drink our, our apple cider and hope to get our act together. Christmas means so much more than this. Christmas is saying something very drastic and very unique among world beliefs. And that is this, we need God to break into our world, to crash through the walls and rescue us. We can't go find him. We can't work our way up to him. He has to skydive in to rescue us. 
Christmas is an invasion of light. Christmas means we can't find our way to God by undertaking any sort of internal spiritual quest or advancing our way through some religious system. Christmas means we were all floundering in our sin and that God must come for us on a daring rescue mission. He has to swoop in from the outside to save us. And that's really an essential part of what it means to be a Christian, is to admit that you needed a cosmic level intervention. But God in His tender mercy was willing to do that for you. Because 30-something years after Christmas, not too far from Bethlehem, the light of the world, Jesus Christ, was crucified in weakness and in darkness so that He might show us the light of the tender mercy of God and the forgiveness of our sins and to rescue us from the judgment that we all deserve but cannot fix. So we do well to listen to the voices of our kids today, for they've told us a story that's one for the ages. And if it's true, as Luke says that it is, then it changes everything. Let's pray. So Lord, we thank you for, for these words, for this portion of the book of Luke, for the words you gave to Zechariah that would show us uh, who Jesus really was and what he would come to do. He would come to be our hero, our strong one, who could defeat the giants of sin and death that we cannot defeat. He would come to be our light to show us how deeply broken we are, to show us how much we need you and to show us how far you would go to rescue us, to show us your tender mercy and the forgiveness of our sins. So we pray for all here that we would cast ourselves upon you, our hero, our light. You would be our strong one and our wisdom to love us, to show us how desperately we need you and to fall upon you in faith again today. We pray all this through him. Amen.